Yeah, I, and for me, I usually make the distinction that Katie Light is my favorite, and Asia might be their best. Asia was a, it was a phenomenon when it came out. Sure, it really was. Yeah, and, and Asia to me is a, you know, it's a, it's not just a career defining album. It's like a an era defining album. You know, like there isn't a yeah, there isn't of, an album that sounds more like 1978 than Asia. Well, it to me is is the culmination of what they were trying to become from the get go which was this studio entity with a, uh, you know, there was never any plan, I don't think, to tour behind the record. Was there? No. Well, or, or, or I'm sure there was talks, but so, I doubt they ever deeply so even considered So they actually it. did consider, after they had finished recording Asia, um, they they thought, you know, hey, it's been a while since we've, we've toured, you know, there's money in it, and... Uh, you know, the studio would really like it if we toured to support this album because it's it's pretty successful. Well, here and so what what they did was they they got a, the core of of their musicians. They said, well, let's get Larry Carlton to play uh, guitar. Uh, you know, Walter could play the other guitar. We'll get Chuck Randy on bass. We'll get uh, Jeff Percaro or you know whichever, probably Bernard Purdy at that point to play the drums. We'll just we'll just assemble a band out of these great studio musicians who have recorded for us, and we'll take it on the road. And so they brought in these musicians to talk to them, and they said, oh, you know, so musician A comes in and they say, hey, you know, we're thinking about doing this. How what what would you want to do it? And that guy'd say, you know, I want uh, twenty thousand. Too much money for them to spend. Yeah, and then they go to the next guy and they say, how much do you want? And they'd say, I. $25,000. Well, whatever that amount was, they said, yeah, that's fine. Studio's paying. We don't give a shit. Well, then those musicians all got together and started and realized they'd asked for different amounts. And so then at that point, Donald and Walter said, well, fuck this. You know, like, we don't want to deal with this disagreement. Uh, if they'd all asked for the same amount, probably they would have toured in see, 78. I, see, I'm going to tell you something. Just knowing studio musician mindset, that never would have happened. It would have cost them more money to tour. Uh, each each musician individually, not right. not the the record company, not the, not the entity Steely Dan. Sure. They would Larry Carlton at that time yeah. was the most on call studio jazz player or studio jazz player, guitar studio player. guitar player right. of all time. And you know, if they were going to be on the road for nine ten months, yeah, it, it, How much he's going to be making have... you know. He's not going to be making the money that he. It would cost them money. I could never see it. Yeah. This this is. I always wondered if that was an apocryphal story. It might have been. It may it may be true, but I I, I can't see them going through it because I can't see them taking the loss. Right. Um. All three of us chose it on our list, but all of us kind of chose this. If you guys will remember our our first Rock and Roll Hall of Fame episode, we always we kind of chose Foo Fighters because we could not choose them. You know, you have to Rest have this peace, on your Hawkins. list. And honestly, this would not be a bad one to start on. I, it's not one I like as more, but it's if you listen to it, the thing is, now it sets a, a bar sonically that is not on the other albums in terms of sound sound quality and production. But Well, and that became, I think, the problem for them afterwards. I mean, for the immediate follow-up, gaucho but also when they reunited is that that a lot of times when people hear it they go eh, this isn't it's not asia well here's the but yeah, nothing you know, is. Here's the thing asia is lightning in a bottle right. go my ahead. own impression and this is me speaking just strictly as somebody who listens as a fan two of the best songs on this album were not the biggest hit and believe me asia spawned what what is it matt four hits uh, four big hits 
Yeah, I think it had uh, uh, Josie Pig, Deacon yeah, Blues. But I don't think I think that was the biggest of the three. I right. don't know if I can't remember. I think Home one. at Last might have been a no minor hit. To say Home at Last and Asia itself, the title cut to me are two of the best songs on the album. Oh yeah, and with Asia, you also get that for those interested in the studio musician uh, standpoint. Wayne Shorter does the sax solo, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, with uh, Steve Gadd on this, drums. This is sure one of those those you know you're you're going to kill me when I say this. This was the most advanced bachelor pad album of all time. Oh no, I, I think I think that the, there's absolutely a like it captures the zeitgeist. It you does. know the the the, the the metaphorical spirit of the times because this is a, a band that had you know they had so this is two albums after Katie Lied, which we talked about. They did Katie Lied, which I described as a piano album, and then Royal Scam, which I would say is an absolute guitar album. Uh, and then, and they'd gone back to New York to record Royal Scam, and they recorded it with mostly New York musicians. And, you know, they'd been in L.A. for a number of years before that uh, and had realized, as you know, as soon as they got to L.A., they, they were writing songs about how shitty L.A. was and, you know, kind of not in a judgmental way, but in a way of, like, looking at it from an outside perspective of saying, you know, what these people here are and what they're about and what they're after. Uh, and then they went back to New York to record the Royal Scam and realized that kind of New York wasn't all that great either. A- and so Asia, you get this weird thing where it absolutely sounds like maybe the quintessential L.A. album. Uh, but yeah. it is absolutely written from a New York perspective. Well, it, I was going to say, it sounds like an L.A. album, but lyrically, it's New York all the way. Oh, buddy. sure. It yeah. really is. And yeah, and the first song, you know, you're, you're in Rudy's, which is, yeah. you know. And it, it's such a, it's an insular album. It is very, it stands in a vacuum. Oh, sure. Uh, in, well, kind of defines the what the vacuum becomes, I guess. But it's it's really a an album that, that I'll tell you this. See, this album is one of those, if there are people who only have one Steely Dan album in their collection, it's Asia. It's probably this one, it's yeah. It's probably Asia. It's the one that, that comes up real high on all the polls for a reason. I'm not saying it's a bad album. Don't get me wrong. Um, I get the feeling it's an album that would sound great on an old school high-tech reel-to-reel. Oh, sure. Not okay. to mention the fact I mean, that you literally, this is one of those kind of like the hypnosis stuff. It, it, for such a simple cover, it's one you can stare at for 30 to 40 minutes and oh, go, what is this? Yeah, and you know, Again, none of the tracks are dead tracks. Of course, there's only, I think, seven, seven right? Yeah. Um, there's only seven tracks, but all of them have their own individual vibe, but they kind of coalesce to, to sort of create something. Yeah, well, it's one of those where, where it, it both feels like a collection of great songs and an album at the same time. Yeah. And there's so many great albums that that the songs wouldn't stand on their own and there's a lot of times where the songs are great but they don't sound like there's a cohesive thought that unites yeah, them all and and this is not, it's not a concept record no not at all uh, I, and it's it's completely um you can listen to each and individual one. The, the the instrumental performances i'm gonna tell you this if you're if you're a, a fan of 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 just amazing musicianship uh, just this album is incredible. We mentioned uh, Wayne Shorter's solo. Oh yeah, uh, Chuck Rainey's playing on this. Yeah, and I think Chuck uh, is, uh, is playing the bass on every track, well, I, I, except for I think uh, I think I think that Walter's playing bass on on Deacon Blues. 
Yeah, Walter's playing bass. Uh, on, no, but Deacon. but Chuck plays on Peg. Yes, yeah. and that's 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 up there. There's a story. I'm not there saying that, it's like where what's going on is, right. but it's it's also one of those bass players' holy grails. So it's, it's a that it's was a, a moment where you know at the time and they were recording this. This came out in, in seventy uh, was it seventy seven. Um, and they'd been recording it, you know, 76, uh, had been writing it and recording it. Um, well, at the time there was a whole lot of, you know, bass slapping in, in mm-hmm. various songs. And so when they were recording this with Chuck Rainey, uh, they said, Hey, you know, we, we, we don't want you to slap on this track. And Chuck said, well, you know, guys, you, you, you trust me, don't you? I think we should really do it on this track. And they said, nah, we don't, we don't really want it. So he said, all right. And then he set up a, a little partition between him and the drummer. And- snuck behind that partition and slapped anyway but but and he but, says they never knew it went down now they knew why? it went down they heard it and said yep he was right but and you know what it's not gimmicky slapping no it's perfect. most of that stuff was gimmicky and it's every note is clear none of them are there for just you know undertones yeah every note is perfect it's defined it's it grooves like a motherfucker yeah, well, they, at this point, they were getting the best of both worlds because the relationship between uh, between Chuck and Walter had had really deepened. You know, Walter had a he, that had been the guy he wanted to get in early on, and, and when they were doing like when they did uh, "Ricky Don't Lose That Number," you know, which was their big hit off of Pretzel Logic. The, you know, he Chuck was the guy he wanted to get in for this, and he had been the bass player, so that meant something to him. And they worked together in such a way that Walter could come in and say, "Hey, here's what I'm thinking." He'd play him a part he had in mind, or hum something to him, and then Chuck would say, "Hey, I like that. What about if we, if on this part I did, uh, you know?" And they could work that way, where they'd work out a part together. Yeah, uh, and, and the, Walter the, could they 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 trusted each other enough that somebody could say, "No, what about this?" without anybody getting offended. Um. It actually it became an issue later because uh, when when Donald and Walter split the band up, and Donald went to record his album The Nightfly, which has some great bass performances on it, but when Chuck came in to record, he said that uh, Donald had like written sheet music for what he wanted Chuck to play, and they, that had never been the way they'd communicated it to him. And uh, Chuck said, "Okay, well I see what you got here. What about this?" And and Donald said, "No, I, that's that's how I want it." And, and Chuck was offended by that, you know, that somebody like I, you didn't hire me to just play what you written down. Anybody could do that. You hired me to come in here and tell you this is what I can. This do. is what needs and at to least be done. Listen to it before you decide, you know. So after that, there was some animosity for a couple of years until Donald and Walter got back together. And Walter, I think, kind of smoothed some stuff over because I saw Chuck sit in, in with him uh, one time and it was great. Uh, it's one other thing. The drummer on that track is one of the more underrated drummers around, Rick Murata. Oh, yeah. I don't think we mentioned him much on our studio musician stuff, but he and Chuck on this one lay down one of the ultimate grooves. Well, and and Rick had said uh, when they were recording that, he said, listening back to it, he said, you know, I've I've been in hundreds of sessions for, for, you know, years now, and in every one of those sessions, I've I've played my kit the same way, and I have never heard... You know that this slight hi hat opening that I do, I've never heard it when it was played back until now. You know, so they were. It wasn't just that they were getting good performances from these guys. It's that they were recording it. They were, you know, engineering things in such a way that it was at a level of of clarity and perfection. And that's why they kind of became more so on Gaucho, but on Asia they started to become the cartoon studio band that would right. do a thousand takes 
if if and and you've told the story before about how Don the Donald says he can tell when it's like right. one millionth of a meter off, and right. he he can't. Right. He, uh, he, 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 <laughs> Technically he, speaking, no one can. Yeah. He he's he's. But if he's if it's an intuitive thing, right, it works for. Well, him. It's one of those things where at the end of the day, if you get the results, it kind of doesn't matter whether it was true or not. You, you've still got the great results so it's it's you know it goes from there and of course you know donald uh, by this point was you know the, like there's a uh the on 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 peg uh it's got this guitar solo um and and the, they had had i think seven or eight different musicians come in and try to uh try to play on on the the peg solo and jay graden is the guy that eventually did it but you know like they they notoriously were going. Uh, nope, that one wasn't good enough. There, there that is one a, wasn't there's good a enough. documentary. It there was a series of of documentaries called Classic Albums, right? And they this was one of them. And they played Talking about the Eagle Rock series. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. They played the different uh, solos, right? And they're each each of them would have worked, but none of them would have worked like that one finally did i mean it was it was amazing to listen to it the other good part about that was they would isolate the uh the backup vocals and over you and over michael you heard michael going Pig! right Pig! yeah so asia again asia is probably as matt said looking at it from a completely objective viewpoint uh, people would view it as their their best album not necessarily my favorite not necessarily any of our favorite but i think all of us would agree it's one we don't mind if someone puts it on. No, no, it's 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 a it is a really really fine album. Th- it really doesn't get much better. Before we go to the, the the third album, Jeff, I want to follow up on a point you made when we were discussing. Uh, you referred to Steely Dan as having a mad scientist approached to their lyrics. I do, which I thought I was just that. perfect analogy. And you said something to the effect of songs that you listened to when you were twenty twenty five. You, f- you found a difference between 20 and 25. Then you find a difference between 25. And, and now, they and part of that is just natural evo- human evolution. Sure. But their lyrics are specifically geared towards, again, to have that kind of impressionistic viewpoint. And we were talking about a song, another song of theirs, and you were, you were mentioning how it was just kind of they were riffing against each other, puns, basically. Right. And they kind of used that as a springboard to go by. And it got... You know, progressively more convoluted and convoluted to you got these lyrics that um, don't always, you know, mean anything. Well, they said they, at some they point that, that in, if you're writing a song that's a story, you can you can do one of two things. You can be very, very verbose like a Bob Dylan and tell the whole story. Or you can only tell the very most important parts of the story and hope that, that the impression that it lends is enough to convey the meaning. And that's what they want. See, I with. think they throw lyrics out there and let you provide the story. Yeah. You're, which is why you and I can get something totally different out of Dr. Wu. Sure, of course, yeah. Um, than, than anybody else can. Whereas a song like uh, Everyone's Gone to the Movies, it's just about a pedophile. I'll put it this way. If you can't – see, I, I didn't even get the pedophile part, you know. <laughs> but e- even then – kids if you want some fun well okay but I, I again my understanding or my impersonate interpretation was that you've talked about kids here's how you jack off which i guess is pedophilia well, except you know we all learned somehow yeah so I, my, my impression of that one was 
that that Mr. LePage is showing films in his den. He's inviting all the kids over and hey, just take your sneakers off and sit right down and I did, I, watch I, the projection machine. But while all of them are watching the movie in the den, he's pulled one aside. Everyone's gone to the movies. Now we're alone at last. I'd like to say thank you to Uncle Creepy for showing yeah, up tonight. And that's I, I, you but, know what, but, but they were the band it. that could sing about that, that without could, being well. As as I'll talk to in another few minutes here, they were able to do a, a light and actually funny song about cousin fucking. Yeah. So they they were subversive, but in a they, way that they, was they they subverted subversion somehow. They won't overt. They weren't overt. Let's right. put it that way. Uh, the third album is uh their uh let's see what is it their fifth album yes uh the royal scam so this is right in between the two we've already talked about uh katie lied and asia okay i guess you could say we have a soft spot for those uh, that particular period that era uh, and i'm gonna say something about this record that uh, kind of ties into what you said about asia a minute ago you mentioned that asia was a great collection of songs but it was also a great album this album is not a great collection of songs. It's a collection of very good songs. But taken as a whole, it works best of all. And I, I'm going to tell you, none, very few of the songs on here would be on my Steely Dan playlist. It's okay? not one that, that has a whole lot of tracks that, are, that you jump to and go, hey, if you want to hear one song from Steely Dan and get Steely Dan, no. it's not usually one of these. But they... They go together. They they go together so well. They groove together so well. They're so cohesive. It has the fur. It's the to me the first Steely Dan album that has a genuine and and Asia kind of did this and and as well Gaucho. It has a very cinematic vibe to it. It 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 is an unstated narrative. It goes from beginning to end. Even though they may not necessarily have a narrative that makes sense, it works musically that way. It, it's a it's a small symphony to me. I, I, yeah, I would compare it to to not maybe not in innovation, but uh, in terms of how it hangs together and the cycle it creates. Uh, Astro weeks or pet sounds. Yeah, I, really I, think, I think it definitely has a, a kind of um, cohesiveness um, that I don't know that, that any of their albums before this had had. I think that that you get a certain amount of cohesiveness from Asia and then a certain amount from from Gaucho, but this one. I, to me, this album sounds dark uh, the whole way oh, yeah. through. It's oh, a yeah. very kind of heavy album, um, not in an oppressive way, but in a way that's just like there's a there's a kind of a deliberate uh, quality to everything that's going on. Here. I, I think so. I think it's meant to be a shady kind of album. Yeah, I, I really do. Well, this, this is Jeff, the you, one you're for the one me. That did choose this, aren't you? Did you not choose it, this? It, on no, yours? no, no, no. Uh, Scam, I think was uh, was fifth for me on the. Okay. This is one really where the studio pops out. Mm -hmm. I start to hear more of the production, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you, strictly from my stand uh, standpoint, this this in all that smooth and and as they've illustrated the darker sound. Don't take me alive. Just pops right out in the middle of this, and it's like all of a sudden here comes this uh, you know just this barreling rock and roll opening. You know that that really just kind of uh, you know provides this this noise interruption halfway through it. But when I hear this, this is where I start to hear. Okay, they've decided that they, they, they're going to take this back and go into the studio and record that way. 
you know, and 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 layer these tracks. Well, I, and, and I don't a think a lot of that to this jazz really comes forward on this. I don't think it's any coincidence either that this is the first Steely Dan album with none of the original members except Becker and Faker. And nobody even makes a, a cameo appearance. Or I none think, I could find unless I you think, know of one. Uh, Denny plays the first of the two solos on Greed Earrings. Oh, does he? Uh, Elliot Randall plays the second one. Um, but Denny was actually on every album up until Asia. Oh, okay, okay, Gaucho, my bad, my bad. I thought I didn't think he was on this record for but some it, reason. But only Denny. And Denny was really, you know, like, there there was something about his playing that, that Donald and Walter both felt like was absolutely the right fit for certain songs. We didn't I mean, mention it on, on the Asia, but I'm, he plays the, the solo on uh, That's right, he does. Home at Last. Home at Last, yep. yeah. Um, and if you look at the additional musicians, um, he's Steely Dan is yeah. listed as Becker and Fagan on this one, not Denny Dias. Right. On the on the and it's an immense list of musicians. Like oh, Jeff yeah. said, this is the one where the whole uh studio as an instrument starts to really come together for them. Yeah, and and you and, get some of the great players, Paul Griffin on keyboards, Don Gralnick, uh Larry Carlton and Dean Parks both on guitar, like I said, Elliot Randall. Who had been playing, you know, on on tracks here and there for them? Who did most of the drumming on this man? Um, this one was was Bernard Purdy on everything except for everything you did and Don't Take Me Alive, which is Pur- Purdy was kind of their go to. Well, on this this couple this time wasn't well, he? Like I said, they had, they had kind of gone back to New York uh, for mm-hmm. some of the recording here, and Percaro Jeff Porcaro said he kind of felt a little miffed. You know, because he had done almost all the drumming on uh, Katie Lyde right. before. Didn't this. that create that create kind of some it it did right up bit. until he heard it and realized what Bernard Purdy had brought to the table and and realized yeah this was absolutely the guy for this album uh, and you know at that point he was like it, uh, they were all professionals. Now, keep in mind you know. Bernard Purdy will also tell you he played on all the Beatles albums. Bernard will too. tell you he played on everything. Yes, Bernard. He's Bernard one of the clearances then. He's a he's a he is a a character man. But um, but has honestly played on as many hit songs as anybody else. Listen, if he had dropped dead after respect, he yeah, would be he a would legend. Still be a great. But he played on everything, uh, including things he didn't play on. Now there was a, there's but, a story that that when they you know they hired him to come into the studio for this, and the day that that uh, he showed up, the sign before he brings in uh, his kit, he sets up uh, two signs. And the like on either side of his drums, and the first one says, "You done did it," and the second one says, "You hired the hit maker." Yep. You know, and that, because that was what Purdy felt of him about himself, and and he was the guy. He had legitimate reason to. Oh sure. And and I want to say something. Guys like Bernard Purdy did not come cheap. Nor did they come easy. You couldn't just throw money at them. Right. They realized that this was a gig that could basically cement their reputation. Well, it was already cemented by that time, but it would burnish it. I mean, these guys, musicians wanted to play on Steely Dan records by this time. Yeah, it, it started to really mean something, mm-hmm. you know, especially because, like I said, that there were there were these tales already going through of how they would hire, you know, a guy to come play on a track, and then even though everybody knew that guy was great. He didn't make the album, you know, so if you did make the album at the end of the day, you know, that was a point of pride for really any studio guy. Which one's Steely? Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, so Purdy is, is the drummer on this. Of course, Victor Feldman is still there to provide percussion like he had been on every Steely Dan album. Uh, and, and 
like I say, I don't think even I think you know Kid Charlemagne's a great song. The Fez, obviously. Yeah, uh, the Fez was their attempt at, at writing a disco song with chord changes. Yes, and it it was successful. And it works. And they wrote a song about prophylactics. Yeah, about rubbers, about condoms. Uh, um, I green earrings is, is, is that's another one of my kind of hidden favorites. That's that's a that's another great live song, you know. And you, can, I, I did see them do yeah. green earrings live, and and uh, the one time I saw them, and but as good as the songs are. The album, it's far more than the sum of its parts. It really it's, makes something great when you listen to it together. It is. Who, oh, who a, was it that didn't choose this record? Uh, I, think, I chose it. I think we all chose it. I think we all no, chose no, it. No, was it not? This is one of them that only two of us chose. Um, I've got the list right here. But I, I already said Maybe it was me. I, I think it was Caves you. of Altamira have always had this sweet spot before. Cause it's, you mean Android factory? It was <laughs> Android Warehouse. Android it Warehouse. Was, it was my it. gateway into... Well, and you can't fail to mention John Clemmer Horse either, because that, that, was, that is a song where you will start to hear, and this will probably come up later in our shows, where you, you really start to hear... I, I suspect, and Matt can clear this up for me, where I, what I would think was Walter started to really hear the Caribbean influence in a lot of the stuff he was yeah, listening I th- to. Yeah, I think that, that, you know, Haitian Divorce is, is a funny song because the engineer on the album, um, well, there were, there's multiple. Uh, Roger Nichols, who had done the engineering and did the engineering for almost all the Steely Dan albums. But then Elliot Shiner, who's another great... Uh, kind of uh engineer uh was was working on this album and actually went and got a haitian divorce because at the time you could fly to haiti sign a paper that said hey i'm divorced now right and fly back and it would be recognized by the united states without having to go through all the legal trouble of, I, I've, of I've, doing something i've spoken of this song's meaning to me before but it bears repeating that uh as my my wife and i grow up towards the Smokies to get married. Just the two of us. We ran off to do it. And um, we had several cassettes that we had in the car. Uh, Legend by Bob Marley was one of them. We had The Last Waltz. All kinds of typical stuff, you know. Right. But we had uh, Steely Dan Gold, which was their first, I believe, their first greatest hits collection. There was a a greatest hits that came out before Goucher was released. Just called the best of Steely Dan. Okay, Steely I, I, Dan's thought that, I thought I thought came out. That was the that. one that had. This was the one that had uh, FM here at the Western World. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So we're wow. driving away from the courthouse. The the we'd gone to and there was there's a little chapel there. We just walked in a little storefront kind of gigs like getting married in red you know redneck Vegas. We go in and Reverend Parsons was his name, <laughs> and as we're driving away from the courthouse to go spend the day in Gatlinburg or Pigeon Forge or, or you know, play miniature golf. Hang out with Dolly. Haitian Divorce was playing on the radio <laughs> or, or on the on the cassette player. And so to this day, that song that has us, you know, that's 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 one of our songs, believe oh, yeah. it or not. Um, Jeff, that was you're the their one, biggest, Jeff, you're the one uh, who did not sing and, uh, did not pick it. That. Yeah, you, that was the, yeah, Haitian Divorce was their biggest hit in England. Uh, it was like a top ten track. Really, you know, it's interesting too, Jeff. You brought out a lot and about one of the solo albums we'll talk about toward the end. But uh, there, there's a real Latin influence. Um, Walter really got into a lot of indirect that indirect and 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 Caribbean like. that that doesn't get. It's not 
again, it's not up front, but it's very there. And we'll talk about it here in our next album a little bit, but um, it's there. Well, it's what's there. funny is that is that a lot of the critical response to Can't Buy a Thrill had talked about the Latin rhythms because Do It Again has that same kind of, you know, Santana-esque uh, rhythm. And then uh, Only a Fool would say that has, has a kind of uh, Caribbean shuffle feel. Um, and so I, early on, critics had said oh, that was one of the things that, that they liked was the the, the kind of uh, well, Latin it really, rhythms. I mean, Walter puts it, it, it to me on, uh, and we'll get into this album later on, uh, Circus Money. He really, you know, you can hear it there, but this has a theme running all the way through. But that's one where you actually hear them running a lot of, or he's running that Caribbean influence through a lot of Western production techniques. And ordinarily, you'd you know you might look and go, this can't possibly work, but somehow it really does work, and it has on a lot of the stuff they've done. Yeah, and I they are mar- You're are, right. They are marvelous uh, synthesis or not synthesis catalysts. Right. I mean, they they bring together seriously disparate elements sometimes. Yeah, and I think it ties in lyrically too, because obviously in the Haitian divorce, you're talking about Haiti, and you you know kind of have this this kind of skeevy feeling of, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of backroom characters. But then in the title track, you know, it's talking about the this kind of false promise made to Puerto Rican immigrants to New York, uh, you know, of, of the idea that at home they're being told that, you know, when you get there, you know, the streets are paved with gold and people just sit around in the back room of a, you know, workplace and waste time and, you know, get paid for it. And then when you get there, you find out that the reality is, you know, is so different from what you've been kind of led to believe that it could be called the Royal scam. Um, you know, and that's a great track. That's, that's one of those that they actually, when I, when I went on and did that tour in 2000, uh, that was the track that they led off the second set with. They opened really? the first set with Boston rag. Uh-huh. And then the second set let, let off with the Royal scam and it did this slow burn intro over that uh, that kind of figure that is playing in the intro to the song. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what 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 song is Boston Rag on? Oh yeah, that's right. That's on that. We'll other we'll album. get to that at some point, right? Jeff's got Maybe. Jeff. Jeff's in his feels about something. We'll get to it in a minute. Okay, our uh, the the fourth album we chose, and I'll be honest with you, I kind of thought this one be a little bit higher. Um, I chose it, and I think you chose it. And you didn't, Matthew. Yeah, I think I chose uh, Wait, it's, a it, different one. Yeah, but it, that's okay. You just uh, don't know your Steely Dan's the problem, man. <laughs> what a poser! Um, if you, uh, it, it's pretzel logic. Only a fool would say that. <laughs> uh, pretzel logic. Now, I, I'm going to say something about this record that is kind of the opposite of what I'm, I, I said about. Uh, about Royal Scam. Uh, this is an album that, to me, has great songs, if not interesting songs, okay? And the first side, to me, is about as good as it gets. Um, on the other hand, I, I think it is kind of a staggered album. I think it's very shattered. I don't think it's very cohesive. And... Uh, it's notable for a couple reasons. For one thing, and Matt, tell me if I'm wrong, isn't they do a East St. Louis Toodaloo on here, right? Which is Duke Ellington song. I and think it's the only cover the they only ever did. Cover uh, on a Steely Dan on, on an album. Yeah. 
uh, Ricky Don't Lose That Number is is probably isn't it their biggest? That hit? Is I think their, it's their biggest I think chart. It hit, hit number three. Or it's got to be. And the Latin influence is right from the first song. Uh, it starts off with that little. It riffs on the, uh, the, uh, the Song for My Father by Horace Remba Silver. Intro, and then Chuck Rainey's playing that Song for My Father. Yeah, yeah which was, and, and Horace Silver was a, 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 I think he was Latin American. He was certainly of Hispanic yeah, well, he had, descent. He, had done, he did that, what is that, uh, Afro Blue? Yeah, he did uh, He did a lot of those, uh, yeah. som- he, he kind of helped bring uh, samba and, and certain rhythms back uh, into the jazz idioms with hard bop. But, uh that bass line that started off and then it just turned into this absolutely elegaic song about this guy who basically he struck out but he knows she missed her shot you know <laughs> i mean uh it, it it's their biggest hit for a reason it strikes a lot of chords yeah and and, and again it's it's one of those that didn't and doesn't still get played a lot live um you know for whatever reason you'd think that if you had a big hit you'd play it at every damn concert you know it'd be like going to see uh paul mccartney and he's just like i'm not doing yesterday fuck you guys well, but that's kind of steely dan's never been known to do things the easy way well, or the, the, the standard way for, for whatever it was worth they could play enough other great songs that people kind of just by the end of it you know matt are you forgot. implying that steely dan was conventional <laughs> yeah now no the, the the thing that always might the thing that I enjoy about this album is, is to me, it's quieter. All right. It, it, perhaps, it, you know, I wouldn't say that the songs, you, there may not be a flow as somebody might say to point A to point B to point C, but this album's quieter. And I, and I think this one's a little bit more acoustic in some ways. See, see, I'm okay. I can see why you say that by some of the song, the, the hits that were off of it. Cause any major dude is on here. Yeah. Which which is second to Doctor Wu on my list, um, which as we talked, bef- tell us why how we talked how talk that before. one got its name because that's an interesting title for a song. Period. Let's hear. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a a specific answer to that. I, I get the impression that it's just one of those. Uh, Walter, I know, had a habit of hearing things in conversation, and then later going you know incorporating them into music because he'd hear a phrase and think there's something to that okay. like uh there was a when he was apartment hunting at some point in new york uh, city uh the the realtor was kind of showing different apartments and when they got to one of them before they went in she kind of in hushed tone said well this is my building uh, as, if, as if that conveyed, you know, like some importance. <laughs> and so then later he wrote a song called This Is My Building. And not, not about what she had said, but just because the phrase stuck with The him. phrase just happened. And they did the same thing head. with names, you know. Like, if you listen to to, to uh, 11 Tracks of Whack, it is 11, right? I get this yes, confused. 11 tracks, 11. but there's actually 12 songs there's, on right, there. As exactly. I One is not Whack. Um, they, uh, he is a great observer and listener. Oh yeah, it, it's. I mean, there are some really, you know, interesting observations on those albums and the way he brings them out. But on on this one, when I got here, you guys were talking about how this is one of two songs you can think of, which mentions a mythical animal. I think it was Lewis Carroll, wasn't it? Uh, the squonk. Just squonk. squonk. Yeah, it's this and a. Uh, God, I can't remember the. Uh, it's it's a Genesis uh, song. 
We don't need to talk about Genesis. They suck. Didn't they just have their like final? Concert? Well, according to you, sweet Jesus, I hope so. Uh, um, that this uh, I've heard people cover this song. They apparently named their song Squonk. Oh, did they? Apparently, there there are people who I've heard them cover this song, and they do it. It's not. It's probably one of their more easily it's, it's playable. It's, it's a fairly for their standards very simplistic song, and they've all said. Have you ever seen a Sparks Tears? Right. Because they don't get it. And the first band I heard to cover that did it right was Wilco. Wilco, yeah. They uh, did that for a, there was a there album was a, called uh, Me, Myself, and Irene. From the movie. Which yeah. was all Steely Dan, almost all Steely Dan covers. And theirs was one of the real standouts. We, we had mentioned both Sava. That's the only version I can stand of that song. Is that it's, it's Brian, Brian Setzer's version yeah. of it, which I think is, is wonderful. Yeah. But see, toward the second side of this album, it's when to me you have it almost sounds like throwaway stuff. Well except for except for um obviously Pretzel Logic, the title cut. Um you got uh, Parker's band, which still sounds kinda hokey to me. Um uh, Through with Buzz, with a gun, and Charlie Freak and Monkey in Your Soul. And all of those sound like they just got together one night and Smoked a bunch of shit and threw out the weirdest shit they <laughs> well, could. Well, like on I said earlier, I, I think you know they had a real problem writing songs while they were touring. And mm-hmm. if if you go back and listen to this one, uh, Barrytown, uh, Parker's band, um, and Charlie Freak had all been uh, part of that early set <clears> of <throat> demos. Mm-hmm. And I, I guarantee you that a couple more of these songs were written early on, either either just as as you know. But I songs. like Barrytown. Was it Barrytown the one you said was Donald Barrytown wrote it himself? Probably, probably a, doesn't have a whole lot of Walter influence okay. from from what I've been led to believe by people who have talked with people, um, which would make sense. I think I I think of Barrytown a lot like I do Brooklyn from that first album, which is like this is a very Bob Dylan song yeah. structure wise. I don't and think really, if you listen to it and and if the next time you put on this album, try to sing it in Dylan's voice and you'll, it works you'll perfectly. absolutely hear it. Yeah. See, I think I'm not saying any of those songs were bad, including Barrytown, but they're just not they up almost sound standard. like they have that purposefully quirky rather than organic quality vibe. Right. Uh, organic quirky quality vibe. Well, and I think them. they would they would agree with you. They they later would start doing uh <clears throat> things like uh album nights, you well, know. They, and this was never one of them. Uh, well, I also I remember they toured at one time and they had a great big wheel. And they would spin the wheel <laughs> and play songs that were on Whatever there. And apparently had a lot of stuff. And they ended up playing uh um, it may have been Charlie Freak. Uh, they played. There was, and, and it mentioned the article mentioned it. One of these was on the record. Uh, right. Was was on on the board. Uh, now you can say that this uh, this kind of makes it an all a more interesting album, and I wouldn't deny that. But to me, it's not one that I have to listen to, and. You know, if I don't listen to them as part of this record, I'm really not going to listen to them. Whereas all of side two, I mean, of side one, I'm sorry, I, I listen to constantly. I, yeah, I think I think on side two, the title track is really the only one that's like, uh, you know, that goes on your compilation CD. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, I think side one is is, and I think that's deliberate. I think they set up side one to be the great stuff, and then side two was what's left. And by that point, they had just 
run out of stuff, which is why they stopped touring because well, they realized it's not sustainable for us. You can either have us writing songs that that we think are going to be successful, or we can tour, but not both. And speaking of the title track, um, kind of getting with, we were discussing some songs that are often misunderstood that don't mean something that a lot of people think they do. And we were talking specifically about uh, well, the night they drove old Dixie down. Right. Um, and it's not about the lost confederacy. I have heard people are offended by pretzel logic. Really? Do you know why? I can't imagine. Why? The lyrics. Because they've misinterpreted them in some way? Very much so. What what is what is the their... minstrel show. Uh, they 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 I think no. he's advocating for minstrel show. Well they don't that's just it. Or they don't really think it's just it's just some therefore... people hear it mentioned and they, they hear a minstrel show. That's that's an archaic thing from the past. That's we we don't point. need to be talking about that. Um well, and, the, the and they completely point. miss the point. Yeah. They do. It's it's the, this is a song See, this is where you get into a little bit of the 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 influence of the the kind of fictional milieu around uh, these guys, which was a very much a dark humor, Kurt Vonnegut esque thing. Yes, this is a song yes. about time travel. That's funny. I was going to open this, and I never really knew they were big Vonnegut fans. Oh yeah, but yeah. I was Walter going to mention loved Vonnegut. that they were kind of the Vonnegut. It's funny because uh, of, of the, that's one of the did. things that we, we talked about. And I said, you know, I, I love Vonnegut, but my favorite Vonnegut is uh, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Mm-hmm. And he said, Which is very underrated. It's not said, one people think of as the yeah, biggie. Yeah, me too. And that's when I knew. Like, you, you, you get that, that where, where you understand that you're just going to get each other. And I would have liked for that to happen with Walter regardless because I had an immense amount of respect. But when it happened, it actually happened organically, which was just, you know, that was that meant a lot to me. Uh, but, yeah, it's like – so they had that, that thing. So this is a song about, about time travel. Time travel. I mean, you know, you step up on the platform, which is what's going to send you back in – in time the man gave me the news so you know what's happening where you're going to get to and then he said you must be joking son where did you get those shoes you can't go traveling back in time with those damn shoes on to, you know, did, i was on. just going to ask you do they ever find out who got those shoes <laughs> no. um but, that, but that's one of those this, things that whenever it comes on I'm, i sing it as loud as i can when, when they line. did this song uh you know this was one of those songs that they were playing live uh, when they were touring before this album came out. And when they do it live, it was a lot like the recorded version, except for when it got to that uh, bridge, um, I stepped up on the platform and the man gave me the news. That was where Michael, Michael McDonald sang sing. it, yes. And Donald said every night Michael McDonald would do that, and every night he thought, why in the fuck am I trying to be the singer <laughs> in this band? Because that guy is such a natural talent. That's that's a great line, and that again, that's the one song on on that side. It's it's a really. Let, good me, song. let me ask you something. You, you, we'd mentioned Vonnegut, and you'd mentioned this is about time travel. Of course, Vonnegut's most famous novel was right about being unstuck in time. Right, old Billy Pilgrim. But did they have? Were they science fiction fans? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Kamakiriad later, and some of the the references you catch, right? Are, and of course, they were named after a steam powered dildo, <laughs> right? Uh, in in a William Burroughs book, but that they, they there's a certain sort of 
future well i don't know if you call it futurism or fatalism in their stuff, yeah, which I, I find in well, both of them have a place in sci-fi. I'll tell you that. Yeah, well, and then and and it kind of is reciprocal because if you ever read any William Gibson, who to yes. me William Gibson is the next era's great science fiction writer. After the you know you had the original golden age, yeah, right. But to me, William Gibson is is you know this is the guy that invented the term cyberspace mm-hmm. and who things like the matrix wouldn't have happened without, without. necronomicon well, and, you, and, and you know that which is a great book oh yeah, yeah. but he he included or not to, tons yeah, of steely dan references he yes he he reached out personally after walter passed away to express his condolences and say how every time they'd ever gotten together which happened a few times he'd found walter to be he, he actually said a quote that uh, that has always stuck with me he said Walter Becker is, is one of the few per- people I've ever met who is every bit as smart as you thought he might have been and wished he were. That's I, I remember him, reading that quote. Yeah. So I didn't know that was him, but yeah. but but you know well, what, did Don, was, what did Donald say when he paid smart as a whip? Oh yeah, yeah. Walter was in every sense that you could imagine just was a genius. And, and Vonnegut was considered by some a science fiction writer. He wasn't purely, but because of. He was Slaughterhouse really, Five, yeah. and and to a, a lesser extent, Cat Cradle and stuff like that. Right, the whole Ice Nine stuff. E- exactly. Hey, it, I happen to be fond of the Slaughterhouse Five. No, it's it's, it's, a great it's not my favorite. Von. I, I'm, uh, I'm a like Cat Cradle guy. Yeah. Cat Cradle is one of those books I give to people. Yeah. as a gift uh you know it's after one of we've those, known each other Cass for a little cradle while. is 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 to me it's like the asia of uh Kurt Vonnegut novels i can it's see so why you'd say that it's not say and here's it's, the one it's all it's like breakfast of champions it's almost a, a young adult novel right but um you can see the influence he had in him uh and i was just i was just wondering was there was there a a, a oh yeah a more you of get a songs like uh, on on royal scam you know there's a song called sign in stranger which is kind of about this futuristic prison planet. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, like, the, talk about the boom on Mizar 5, which is a very Vonnegut name for a, a planet. How, you know, how big was the collection of Omni magazines at Walters? Oh, yeah, they, they, they yeah. absolutely, like, they, they absolutely dug that stuff. Uh, you know, but I think that it was really a pervasive part of a certain counterculture you know, in the 60s. I, yeah, I agree. I don't think it was just them. I mean, if you look at the effect that something like Stranger on a Strange, in a Strange oh, yeah. Land had on the, 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 counter, the hippie movement primarily, right. but earlier than that, it kind of hit the beats. You're going to go to Heinlein now. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, I mean was, it's just, that's just yeah. one book. Well, the rest of the stuff, no. But could kind of explore, you know, uh, the ideas of like what is, and really, you know, the, the ever-present fear of, of – a reemergence of fascism, yeah, uh, it was, and the consequences of of kind of a of uh, failed socialism. Well, you could see, and they could play that out in science fiction, and you could you could indulge in that in a way to explore what well, what was going on around. That's here. where I was just going to say science fiction was coming to its full maturity at that point and was starting examining those things, and it wasn't ju- it wasn't just Stranger in a Strange Land, sure. but but uh, you know guys like J. G. Ballard. Um, were getting read by these the, the the folks who were just a little bit off center at that time. Right. Even the point of people who that if you'll remember, uh, the Lord of the Rings really wasn't a big deal until the sixties, and right, then because, it became the two read thing for yeah for it, it, it went in in yeah. and out. I mean, it had its moments there as a children's book, and then in the sixties it was reread. Well, it as, became hey, a, it know. became a statement of, yeah, of counterculture. Right, exactly, and 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 so it was your freak flag. Right, and and they flew that proudly. The, uh, the the science fiction end of that, 
Yeah. Um, but I think also that there was, you know, and I kind of, this ties into some of, of what I wrote in my book, which is that America had this whole obsession with, uh, with frontier and what the frontier was and how it defined. You had this guy named Frederick Jackson Turner who wrote a thesis that said the frontier defined America and the closing of the frontier in the 1890s really summed up American history to that point. Well, in the 50s, as you know, we started exploring space and you had, you know, Sputnik and then Yuri Gagarin and then, you know, American astronauts, uh, uh, you really started to transfer our kind of cultural identity into space. Into what, yes. And science fiction became the way we were going to talk about ourselves going forward, which is why, you know, the the generation before had, um, you know, I don't know, rawhide and gunsmoke and and well, that yeah, kind of it's, thing. it's the westerns of yeah, yeah, and then yeah, you have even, Star well, Trek and if you look at a lot of the fifties, uh, you know, and I don't want to get too far afield here, but a lot of the fifties is the same story. I mean, even then, most of your science fiction stories were basically rewritten westerns, right? In a future, well, Star thing. Wars is a western. Yeah, really that's all it. That, that, yeah, that's it all is. it's ever been. I mean, he he can talk all he wants to about how you know it's a Saturday uh, series, Campbell and stuff. Yeah. But it's a it's a it's a it, Saturday series. It's an all mythology thing. That's it's all, all it is. Mythology. Yeah, but and and one more thing too. Think about the guys like um, who who were of that generation of Becker and Fagans and some of the other guys we're talking about. <clears throat> Think of how many times they saw things. Sure. Westerns on TV, but they also saw things like uh, the day the Earth stood still. Sure, or yeah. you know stuff like that. So it made a it made an impact, and and Steely Dan seems to be, again they're the most literary of bands I think you'll find. Right, and they were the ones to kind of grasp that that wasn't just you know fairy tales. Right, that there was something kinda, beyond that. Kind of grasping a little bit to it. 